Hey, you're listening to the Jan Hofmann podcast and today's episode, I'm sitting here with Patrick Larm, uh, who's working for getbright.se, which is a very exciting technology company. Patrick, why don't you introduce yourself a little bit to people who don't know you yet? Yeah, sure. First of all, thank you so much as well. Very, very nice to be here. So uh, like you said, my name, is, uh, my name is Patrick. I'm the Chief Revenue Officer of Bright. Been with the company roughly a year. And basically what we are doing is that we are helping energy consumers better to understand, first of all, their energy consumption, but then secondly, to do something about it and, and automate it either for, for the benefits of the climate or to change behavior and, and essentially also me. And my background, I worked in digitalization for a very long time. And I guess the red thread for me has always been sustainability and growth. So I've been with a few startup scale-up uh, journeys, working either as your first boots on the ground or coming in and scaling sales, sales team and sales organization, also working very closely with our customers. So I guess that, that's me in essence. And you have a pretty broad background, I would say, right? You didn't always work in business development specifically from what I found on the internet. So could you walk me through a little bit how you transition from that to what it is that you're doing now? Yeah, sure. I think that has actually it's a good um, it's a good segue also to why I'm why I'm where I am today. So I actually started off within tech, both from uh, from using university and working a lot with uh, different kind of systems, uh, like a C, been in CTO roles before, also working a lot in in consultancy as um, senior consultant within both business intelligence and also management consulting for some time. And I think as time went by, I, I figured out that my position was probably somewhere in the middle that, you know, you know enough of IT, but I transitioned more and more over to, to sales and uh, to management position, building organizations, working a lot with people. And then and, and like from an educational point of view, uh, also, also added uh, an MBA to that. So I've sort of made the journey from the tech side over to uh, to more of an operational role, building and scaling organizations, working a lot with with uh, staff development and and uh, development of uh, of teams, basically, to sort of where I am today, where I guess the past couple of years working with like mission driven and purpose driven organizations, either doing something good for for the climate or for humanity, basically, or both. So right before joining Bright, I was also with a UK-based company called Infogrid, for instance. So working a lot with carbon offset within uh, within real estate and IT. So I guess that's sort of the journey that I've done. So this is maybe the, the third transition, first from, from tech to, to operational and building teams to sort of finding the purpose and, and mission-driven companies that uh, I find very interesting. Gotcha. And what have you found was the most challenging part from transitioning from a CTO sort of role to, I believe initially it was consulting uh, in your case, right? So how did you, how did you experience that transition, right? Because it would be very insightful probably to understand for everyone. Yeah. Yeah, sure. I think one of the, one of the hardest things, and that, and that probably goes for a lot of people, not just me, is that when you come from a very, very like detail focused and detail oriented role where, where you do a lot yourself, it's sometimes hard to keep your fingers out of the cookie jar and to actually to actually delegate and moving away from from details and and maybe paying more attention to the holistic and the holistic picture and the overall achieving goals that you're trying to achieve as an organization or as a company 
But I think also for me, since I spend a lot of years within consultancy and also within on the delivery side of things to actually transitioning also more and more over to a vendor point of view, uh, that's also, I think, a journey that you do on a personal level when it requires uh, skills to navigate an organization and your own internal organization. As a consultant, I, I wouldn't necessarily go as far to say that you get away with a lot of stuff, but you're actually paid to come in and do a job or a task. And sometimes you're also paid or you are brought on board to actually get like a really transparent view of things, if you will, right? So come in to say, come in and say what problems we have so we can address them. And that's a little bit trickier to do within an organization because then you have an extra layer of politics upon that and you have sort of more cultural aspects to take into to account. So for me as an individual, what it has done to me and, and for me is that I have developed an interest of, of people and how to actually scale organizations and how to work with dynamic teams. That's a transition that I've done on a personal level my, myself as well. And that sort of comes from, from the transition f- from a vendor to more like building, building your, your own organizations, I would say. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, I noticed this with myself as well. If I like, I used to have this hobby where I would just play chess for a couple of hours per day, and it just would because it's a problem solving sort of approach you take, right? And it's not really taking people's emotions and their agendas into account, right? So it actually started to rub off on me in a work environment as well. So it was really hard for me to to delegate decision making, for example, right? Because with chess, it's literally like you're just playing by yourself, right? It's not a team sport. And if something goes wrong, it's your fault. And you really have to think everything through by yourself in detail, almost to the end. So it's really, it's interesting how this applies to so many different things, right? Because there's separate activities where like, they require different kind of skill sets being applied to them essentially, right? Because it's like, if you want a team to make decisions, it's more about giving them the context that they need, right? And you don't have to do all the decisions by yourself, I guess, right? No, I agree. And I think that the, the sort of holistic view comes to play as well, because you're very task oriented when, when you're doing like hands on stuff and your example, your example with chess, right? It's you need to participate the next move, right? And, 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 uh, and those things. But it's like you said, it's also very problem solving, but it's it also it's also quite rational, right? So it's like it has a logic to it. Mm-hmm. And you can't expect that same logic to apply to organizations and people where you have like emotions and feelings and maybe or it could be something else that you have a problematic environment for certain people as well. So it's I think it's fascinating to really understand like the the overall holistic view. And I think I think a lot of people would agree to this as well, that at least that that's the journey that I did that, you know, coming from maybe what's his or her problem, you know, why can't we just do it, right, to really like, I wonder why she said that, or I wonder why he mentioned that, I wonder why this task was not carried out, and and I've stopped myself and my communication and, and my leadership style, and and that goes for, for, for clients as well, to really sort of nail what is the driver when you're taking on something new, and I think a lot of things, it really boils down to dynamics and communication but i mean it says processes also risk management right mm, how so no i would say that i mean let's say that that you have uh, you have a you have a client of yours that you want to sell a solution and then you know you could sit down and, and think like why don't why haven't they signed the contract yet why haven't they come back with the purchase order right i mean i told them all the kpis 
we did all the product demos. We went through the technical specification. What are, what are, why are they holding back, right? And I guess, I guess a lot of organizations, especially given the financial situation right now, that doesn't really necessarily apply for the energy industry because, because it's such a hot market anyway. But the thing is that what you miss, and this is something that I learned like probably maybe five, seven years ago or something like that, that you kind of, and this comes back to understanding as well, you know, like, so let's say you have an organization of of 75 people and then, you know, sales reps, and then you say, guys, good news. We're going to change CRM system. I mean, you would panic over, over a move like that because it's so tightly connected to a lot of risk. Like what if, what if it doesn't pan out? What if we buy the wrong system? What if the what if the team loses on productivity and so forth? And the same goes for for the customers, right? In a sales process where you know everything could sound really nice, you see a product demo and anything, but but then it comes to the implementation part when you actually it's going to start rolling this out. Like there's so many things that can go wrong, and 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 the last thing you want to do is is to be the scape be the scapegoat in your in your organization, right? So that's why I think a lot of it, uh, at least for me, is about really like risk mitigation and understanding the key drivers and and what what a potential client is actually afraid of. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, especially in a like this is a more corporate environment as well, right? Because like energy companies they tend to be quite big, and it's a pretty consolidated market, right? Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, also like like tiny mistakes can affect since most of these players also have quite large number of customers, right? So like tiny mistakes could affect up to millions of, of end consumers, right? Or so it's also about really understanding the process and the drivers and, and, and the KPIs of the organization. And also like, what are they trying to achieve? What is the problem that we're trying to solve? And how can we make sure that that we actually, uh, that we actually, first of all, deliver on that. But secondly, then that we also mitigate risk when it comes to the implementation itself. Because let's face it, it's it's always it's always connected to a risk somehow, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it's. Uh, I feel like the bigger an organization becomes, definitely the more sort of risk averse they become, right? Because no one wants to. And it's also, for example, if consultancy firms why companies like McKinsey, for example, are doing really well, right? Because people to an extent are buying the blessing on the decision that they want to an extent, right? Because they had a person from McKinsey review it and it kind of builds the safety cushion around if something goes wrong, it's kind of not their fault because McKinsey said it made sense, right? Yeah, I think, and I think this is also like, this reminds me of, uh, of something else that, you know, if you work with Let's say you work for a smaller organization, you might have the superior product, but you haven't been around for as long. I remember back in the days when I was doing a consultancy within within business intelligence and, and, and we were working a lot with forecasting and, and building like financial models for, for organizations. And I couldn't help wondering, it's like, why, why do they all pick the same software? And then, you know, they sit around and nag about how poor the software is. And, and then you need to buy like extra tools, right? Because I mean, if you buy from IBM or if you buy from SAP, I mean, everybody's doing it. So you're actually not doing anything wrong, right? So as a CFO, you kind of get deniability if, if you bought an SAP system because everybody does it and it's supposed to be the best thing in the market. But that's maybe not necessarily true all the time that since it's such a huge tool that can be used for so many things that if you don't understand the problem you're trying to solve, it might be the wrong tool for you. But people still go down that route because it's the safe bet. And I think it's the same thing here. It's like, you know, 
it can't be wrong because McKinsey reviewed it, or it can't be wrong because we had a few guys coming in from from I don't know Boston Consulting Group or Accenture or something else, and 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 they said that this was this was a done deal and this was this was good to go, right? So so I agree with you that it can sometimes be the blessing you need in order to actually to get the in play, but that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the right decision for your organization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. I really feel like like it's kind of this groupthink sort of thing a lot of organizations fall into because it's just like there's more safety in those sort of decisions, but you're not actually necessarily maximizing the value, right? Because there's a lot of stuff as well that I think like it's quite easy to undo in case it goes wrong as well, right? And it's just sort of how organizations work because some places like they're really looking for a scapegoat, other places they're a bit more tolerant if something goes wrong etc etc right so definitely makes a lot of sense here i have a personal curiosity question if that's okay yeah yeah sure because like i saw that you handled one of the previous companies uh, in a similar role to what you're having at the moment you handled the market entry to germany right could you walk me through a little bit how you did it so where the customers sold to in German, how did you manage the German staff? What were some of the cultural differences you noticed, et cetera, et cetera? Sure. Yeah. First of all, I think I have the advantage that I am actually German speaking. So that's uh, one thing that I oh, think that helped definitely a helps. Lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Uh, uh, I've also actually lived in Germany. So I'm, I'm quite familiar with the cultural aspects, both the similarities towards the Nordic culture, but also the differences. I was actually I was actually a co-writer of a book done by the German Swedish Chamber of Commerce where I highlighted a few of, of these of these differences and uh, of these uh, similarities as well and it's called uh, it's called uh, like the guide to German business culture I think it would be the best way to translate it to to English but uh, yeah to answer your question I think it starts with really understanding the key drivers in the market, like where are we going with this? What do we want to do? Because I think today, since especially post-COVID, since everything is so is so convenient to do on, online, right? Independent if that is if that is 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 communication or taking an online meeting or or so forth. So I guess a lot of organizations sometimes feel like, yeah, let's let's launch, let's open up an office, let's hire a couple of country managers or or regional managers, and then we build a team. And then we go from there. And I think that's I think that's the total wrong strategy. And uh, learned it the hard way as well, because I experienced it myself in previous organization. I think you know you really need first of all you really need to do a, like a thorough market analysis, of course. But I also believe that you should try to do as much as you can from the market where you have your HQ. And why? For a lot of reasons, if you open up a new office and you build a team in that location, it's going to take them quite some time to, first of all, get like integrated with the company, integrated with the culture. And you will have like a subculture problem, if you will, or not necessarily a problem, but that will definitely be a challenge because these guys will feel like a satellite office and that they're not part of the HQ. And their learning curve is going to be very much longer than the learning curve of of people working at at HQ, for instance, right? So I think you should try to do as much as you can from your home market. But when you actually decide to take on a team, you shouldn't go for a specific location in my book. I think it's actually an advantage if the team is spread out 
across the market, if you will. So I guess really what I'm trying to say is that when it comes to managing teams that are brand new in a, in a new market, that's like a totally different leadership that is required. You can't do it like the old fashioned way that we have done it before. And I think also then, you know, coming back to what you said with, with cultural aspects. So what I think you should do is that you should try to get the first couple of customers on board before you actually go, before you actually establish yourself in the market with a local presence, because you can, you can offer the same functions like support and everything in that language, but doesn't necessarily have to be within that market. And I would really like to emphasize to understand like what are the main drivers for this market? What are these companies afraid of? What uh, is keeping them up at night and sort of, also not to take local legislation too easy. And I mean, if you take Germany, for instance, it's super strict when it comes to GDPR and this GFO, right? So it's that's really something to take into account and don't just assume that your product's gonna work out of the box if you're running on US tech, for instance, because then you will run into a problem. If you're in the financial field, you know, you need to take like very specific things like buffing into account, right? And so forth. So you really, really need to understand the local legislation, because the worst thing that can happen is that, you know, you launch and then you get going and then you learn after like 25, 30 meetings that I don't have a product fit for this market because there's so much things that I need to do. I need to, I need to, I need to consider everything from storage to, to getting certifications to, to, so, so that's like one thing. It is usually all this odd stuff that that's very hard to anticipate, right? Like you mentioned a couple of things that apply in general, right? Like what P keeps them up at night and stuff like that. But like there's so much odd stuff you wouldn't probably even consider, right? Based off just cultural differences or the market being different in that specific segment. It's really kind of like a like a Pandora's box in a way, right? Which can be a good thing because there's opportunity, but can also sort of backfire if you overinvest in the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. And then I think also when it comes to you, you, you were mentioning the cultural aspects. Then it's also about knowing if we take Germany, for instance, or it could be the Netherlands or or Denmark or pretty much any other markets. Like to really understand the market dynamics, like how like simple stuff that. You wouldn't disagree with your boss in Germany in a meeting, probably, if it's an external meeting with, with an external party. But that's something you would do if you are in the Netherlands, for instance, or or maybe in Norway or Sweden. That it's That's totally fine. Because the culture is more direct, right? Even though Germany is quite direct and not as direct as these more northern sort of countries, right? Yeah, but I would say that like Germany, there's more like there's a hierarchy within the organization, if you will, that, you know, if the... When decisions are supposed to be made, you bring your boss to the meeting and you would disagree with him or her in that meeting. And, and it's more like, it's more strict, I would say, and, and a, a little bit more like rigid and, and re really like professional. Like when you are at work, you're at work, right? Oh yeah, formal, for sure. Yeah, yeah exactly. Formal, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, formal, that's good. That was the word I was looking for. But But it's really like also to understand like, What's important if, if when you go to work in, in Germany, for instance, or because if you take Sweden and Norway, it's completely different. I mean, we, we, we are super tightly connected to each other, but we have diametrical differences when it comes to how we work, right? If you try to schedule a meeting with somebody in Norway after three o'clock on a Friday, they will not show up because they're on their way to their 
to their house or like like the like a vacation house if you will so it's more it's also to really understand coming back to the drivers on a personal level but like also what is expected in this market can i expect people to work after six o'clock in the evening in norway no probably not but in some other countries in europe sure then that's not a problem but you know also to really understand like like the main movements in the market and what is, is, what is what's important from a compensational point of view to working with a lot of freedom and make be able to make your own choices or not just monetary but also but also other other aspects of, of work life and just say that something you can't neglect you need to understand that as well otherwise it's gonna it's gonna be tougher to work together if you don't understand this as well right so yeah for sure, yeah, especially if it's kind of a satellite office sort of feeling, right? And then like people aren't there in person, you don't immediately see someone feeling upset about something. It makes a lot of sense for sure. And I think I think also like the organization itself, let's say a Swedish company, could be a Norwegian or a Danish, doesn't doesn't matter. You are probably you probably have all your sales material in Swedish or in, in Norwegian or Danish. All communication internally is probably also in that native language, which means that if you onboard somebody who is not a native speaker of, of Swedish or Danish or Norwegian or German, it's going to be super hard for them to get, you know, all of this tacit knowledge, all of these like really like fundamental understandings of maybe product descriptions or business cases uh, and so forth. So if you really want to go like multi-market and, and go outside of your, your own market, that work needs to start at least, I don't know, six, 12 months prior to that, where you change your entire corporate culture and you move to English, for instance. So that once these guys are onboarded, uh, if they go to Slack and they want to go through old channels, or if you want to look at presentations and business cases and, and like descriptions of the product, or could be something as easy as, as the employer handbook so you don't start with that when it's too late like all of a sudden oh we don't have we don't have our our, our handbook in in german or we don't have our our product description in english right so that that needs to start early and the reason i'm mentioning it is also that since i've opened up offices in germany twice uh, and also in other markets is that you know the guys that you hire they are new on the job for so long right so their learning curve that could be two to three months ends up like six to nine months before you get like any productivity out of it and it's a huge cost for and not only a huge cost missed opportunity for for the organization to to actually make the best use of of the talent that they have acquired very interesting yeah, yeah especially with these bigger structures again there's because if it's like a really small structure it's fairly easy right because they're also not going to be too concerned about like regulation potentially and stuff like this but then like once companies become bigger all of these things become much much more significant right um, so that makes sense i think another variable is probably like just people's language as well i mean we touched on that already right but if you would want it in english like there's some countries where that doesn't work like spain for example uh, i just moved here recently and no one speaks english basically so like there, there's this odd stuff where like there's so many variables it's really interesting to talk to someone who kind of has done it and where you can learn kind of the lessons from it just because like, like there's all these variables you don't see up front if you haven't done this before right you just think okay like it's just a different language whatever let's just get this life right but like the reality 
exactly like looks much much more complex actually no i agree and it is something to really really sort of take into account and consider because it's also like coming back to risk i've been talking a lot about risk i realize but it's also about i mean if you have a plan that's kind of like you know if you have a forecast in excel or if you have like anything on paper that's like yeah this looks pretty good or 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 a sports team if you will like but that doesn't mean that things will pan out exactly that way so i think you need to look at all of these where could you have breakdowns in the system or the structure if you will and what do you do at that point right and try to really anticipate i know it's hard but try to really anticipate and and talk to maybe experts in anything from bookkeeping to whatever it might be in a new market but also like you know to really go for that competence with somebody who has actually done it before who have seen it firsthand explode in their face when they launched in a new market and kind of get the map of what not to do that could sometimes be better than to have the map of what you should actually do right mm, yeah for sure yeah because there's less room for interpretation and error yeah, makes sense interesting so could you talk a bit more about what get bright is currently doing so like what kind of companies do you guys help uh, what's the utility companies get out of working with you guys etc cetera, etc cetera. so basically what we offer is a white label platform for energy management and bright actually used to be a utility provider uh, ourselves so we used to be an energy trader basically selling electricity to uh, to consumers and what we did in 2000 and i say we i was not employed uh, employed with, with, with bright at the time but uh, the company pivoted in 2018 and started to sell the product as a white label product. And the, the customer base consists of utility providers, could be grid operators, energy traders, that can have multiple different services to their end, com end customers. Primarily, it's a, it's, it's a B2B2C, so it's a business to business to consumer product, but it works for, for energy customers within the, uh, within, the, within the company segment as well. And basically what, what the product offers is, first of all, you get an, a really good overview of your energy consumption. You also get a really good understanding of what is consuming energy, understand and control and manage the electricity consumption. You have cost and environmental impact. And, and what you then also get is like a really smart, I would say, AI-powered energy platform that can do anything from charge your car uh, during when uh, when the energy price is is the best during a day so you can set up smart schedules for that to like the really trivial uh, stuff to look at your invoice pay your invoice understand what is consuming the most and also get like a, advice on what you as a consumer should change so basically in essence we deliver a platform that the utilities fill with their content their look and feel their logos, their colors, and then they deliver that to to their customers uh, with our help. So it's uh, we're a B two B SaaS company, basically. Yeah. So this might be a bit of a stupid question. Apologies. Um. So wouldn't a electricity company not want the customer to have this kind of information? For example, like how to spend less with them, right? Like what's the like there seems to be some kind of trade-off here that I'm not uh, not necessarily seeing. Yeah. Yeah. So basically, a lot of organizations, and you're absolutely right. Most organizations, for, for most organizations, this is a no-brainer. Right. You know, we need an app for for our 
for our customers. But if you look at most energy companies, their expertise doesn't lie in building digital customer journeys, to be honest. Their expertise lies within other fields, like how to optimize the grid or or, or working with, with anything business related to their core business. So really what I'm saying is also that they struggle quite from both an organizational and competence point of view that build these solutions themselves. And that's from a sourcing problem of getting like app developers, for instance, if you will, or integration developers on board because those... Pretty painful, yeah. <laughs> yeah, those competences are are sucked up elsewhere, right? So they go to Spotify or they go to, to companies such as ours or, 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 or other companies. So one is like, they definitely want to do this, but most of the companies have sort of come to the conclusion that it's better to let somebody else do this so we can focus on using the tools and communicating with our customers and not spending so much time trying to develop them themselves. So the most, you know, most energy companies that we bring on board, it's roughly 45 now in the platform uh, that uses the platform. Yeah. They actually had something else before that they decommissioned or, or that they let go. Okay. So, so what you're saying is it was like, usually this is an upgrade for customers or businesses, electricity providers, utility providers who already have an app that they're using, right? Uh, and they're just simply not satisfied with it, right? Exactly. So either that or they don't they don't have an app yet, right? Yeah. Okay, got it. So what are the things specifically that make someone like switch? Like what are the like issues that they're struggling with in like if they already have an existing app, like what's what's wrong with the existing apps usually? Yeah, I would say that it's not sophisticated enough. It it doesn't have the full functionality that that we are offering. So you don't have the possibility to do charging based of your electric electric vehicle based on dynamic pricing, for instance, or you don't have integrations towards all the different car brands like BMW, Audi, Porsche, and so forth. So you, you, don't, you don't have all of those connections. And then I would also go as far to say that, that the customer experience isn't good enough. The app is not sexy enough. It's not nice. And you're, you're lacking a lot of functionality. That's sort of mostly the, the drivers. But above all, it's lacking functions you know, you miss chatbots, for instance, you don't have that that possibility. Or it's more or less that you only display consumption and nothing else, right? So it's 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 basically about, I would say, a combination of look and feel that, that an outdated solution or a, a solution that is lacking functions and features. And as a result, nobody's using it. So they're struggling with end user penetration, basically. Okay, and that's basically where you guys come in and people actually like using it. It has the features people want, et cetera, et cetera, right? Yeah, so what we have with the customers that we're serving today is that we have quite a high number of their customer base onboarded in the app. And we also have quite a high number of retention, close to 70% uses the app on average at least once a week, but uh, like like 50% of the users uses the app on a daily basis, especially during the, the, the period that we have experienced in the past four to six months with you know energy prices going bananas and, and skyrocketing and where you really want, you know, like every cent is, is counting, right? Every kilowatt hour is counting. 
So you really need to to get your consumption under control, and then we've seen we've seen a significant increase in in interest. Yeah, got it. Interesting. Yeah. So it's basically because customers just get more price sensitive at the moment. That's clear. Okay. Yeah. The last thing I wanted to mention as well was that uh, because you said that they are in more users are more increased uh, aware when it comes to pricing, but energy consumers today are also increasingly aware when it comes to their CO two footprint. So like we have more educated energy consumers today than we had maybe five or 10 years ago where you where it actually matters if you have solar panels on your roof or where your electricity is coming from and uh, and and for a lot of households today it also matters with your part of like the emission where where we see an increase of users that actually want to control their 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 usage based on CO2 obviously price is a good driver but we see that users want to make educated choices that is also good for the planet so so that's an interesting thing as well i think Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I think I've seen this as well with Google Maps. If you ask it for directions, if you're in a car, uh, it also gives you the option to pick the most CO2 efficient one, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, it's it's definitely a pretty strong trend, right? Because this wasn't really a thing in the like the last century. I uh, definitely we're talking about like it's a huge time ago. Like it is to an extent, um, but. Like back then, it really wasn't too much of a concern, right? This is something that's been only going on for, I think, since 2004 or 2005 or something like this. It's definitely gained a lot of relevance in regards to how people sort of make their decision in their day-to-day sort of life, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, if I'm an energy company and I don't have an app yet, so basically what would be the reason to develop this? So it's something customers are demanding at this point. Uh, are they bleeding customers? Uh, what exactly are the drivers for someone reaching out to you regarding that? Yeah, sure. Excellent question. I think it depends a little bit on the case, but I would say that the common denominator is that they're either bleeding customers Mm-hmm. or the the requests from customers have increased you know coming back to what i said that we have we have more educated energy consumers today than we had maybe 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 5 10 years ago or maybe also maybe 3 years ago you don't have to go that far back and that comes from that you have an outdated customer experience as an energy provider today the way i see it is that you can compare utilities with where telcos were maybe 10 or 15 years ago where you sold phone subscriptions right it was was quite boring as well you know it was more about invoicing the customer and the only relationship you had with the client was basically that you signed them up you got them onboarded and then you started sending them invoices so is it really like a commodity right like like a utility and that's sort of where i find a lot of the utilities companies today if you look at the transition that telco has undergone today you're not even selling hardware it's more like that's just expected to be there and the same goes for the subscription you're selling customer experience you're selling data you're selling something else so the business has transformed transformed quite dramatically and the same goes for for the utilities but they haven't caught up with it right so they have an outdated customer experience but the increased demands from customers to say look I want my consumption. What should I do? I want real-time data. I want the possibility to charge my car when it's beneficial for the climate and for me from a financial point of view. 
I want to understand what I should do in order to reduce my consumption. And the thing, the thing that a lot of these providers are, are sort of lacking is not the will. They want to do this. They just don't know how. And that's why they reach to a company like, like Bright to say that, look, we see that your app covers the use cases that our clients want. And it could be also something that can have a very positive impact on churn on average, like 10% on a yearly basis that, that they start, start to keep their customers and don't. But it's huge. Yeah. 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 So it's huge. And, you know, then we haven't even discussed like the benefits of self-service that there's so many things you can do in the app via the chat bot or via FAQs. So you don't have to call customer service. And I mean, a call or an interaction with customer service costs on average said between seven and 10 euros, right? So that's also a huge cost saver when it comes to lowering the volumes of calls and, and, and interaction with customer service, right? Interesting. Yeah, yeah. This makes a lot of sense. This is basically it's not just good for the environment, right? Also, as a company, you just achieve a lower churn rate, right? A better churn rate at the end of the day. And it makes a big difference to how valuable the company is uh, on the front end, how much the company can spend to acquire a customer as well. So that makes a lot of sense, yeah. And also for, for us as a mission-driven company, what we do is that we actually accelerate the electrification. We accelerate the way we use the grid because it's also about for the utility to be able to optimize when customers are using energy. And if they work with dynamic pricing and hourly pricing, for instance, which is quite common in the Nordic market, maybe not less common in, in, in Germany, but you will land there eventually. And there's already work being done to sort of push clients to dynamic instead of a fixed price. Yeah, you're also you're also doing something good for the grid, and you're also doing something good from a planning point of view. Because I mean, we're talking a lot about reducing our energy, which is great, but the electrification itself makes you know you can't escape the fact that we will need more energy in the future and more electricity. Yeah, for sure. So then it's going to be very important when and how we use and consume that, so so that it actually becomes sustainable as well. I think another example, uh, just out of my personal life, like I don't talk too much to my electricity provider, I'm probably a pretty easy low-churn customer. <laughs> but like an example as well would be banking, right? So I used to yes. uh, have these German banks, not Deutsche Bank, not to name any names, but like <laughs> there, there were a couple, a couple of banking providers that I was working with, right? And I would just send physical mail, like you would have to call someone to get to support, etc. And personally, at some point, like all of my friends, like in my age group, right, like 28 now, maybe 30, they were all using uh, Revolut, right, which is like much easier. You get better exchange rates if you're in a different country, etc. And like I thought, okay, like the exchange rates are nice, but like how much easier does my experience actually get, right? And then I started using it and it's just because everyone was using it as well, right? At a certain point, you start using it too. And then... Like you just see how much easier this is to work with, right? And then you talk to the other bank and you see, okay, you like this doesn't really like it's not that easy, right? And then you just put more and more of your money to the bank where it's just easier to manage for yourself, right? And I think it's with electricity, especially for users that are generally that would like to be more engaged. I think that really makes a huge difference in regards to like how they're choosing providers, how long they're staying with a provider, et cetera, et cetera. 
Yeah, I think it's interesting that you're mentioning banking as well, because I mean, it's a lot of it is still the same services, but you're but you're competing with uh, you're competing with something different, like like ease of use, for instance, or you're competing with a superior customer experience or or a superior customer journey, if you will, right? So, I think a lot of and there's been like a lot of research done when it comes to this as well, right? But I think the experience is super important for us these days, and I think also consumers. They are so used today that everything is available and easy. And if things aren't available and easy, they become dull and boring and you tend to t- focus your attention to something else, right? And I think I think also it, this sort of let's I mean let's let's look back a few years ago like if you weren't happy with the phone that that your that your employer gave you, then you brought your own phone, right? So you this sort of this sort of sort of like bring your own device thing. I don't think that a lot of people do that anymore because now today that even employers have sort of embraced the fact that if we can't provide a good experience and, and provide the teams with with the with the stuff they need, you know, we will lose out on talent over such a stupid thing as a phone or or maybe other benefits. And I think it's the same thing with like the Netflix experience nowadays or the Spotify experience that it's more like subscription based. As long as you like it, you stay. But if you don't like it then you cancel it instantly and then you vote with your feet and you go someplace else, right? Mm-hmm. And that has sort of started to nestle its way into like the insurance industry, the telco industry for sure, the banking, the utility industry and so forth. And we see this in quite a lot of a lot of similar ways across various industries that if we don't like the experience, then we leave because it's super easy to leave today and it's super easy to be on board at someplace else, right? So I think like, the crucial thing is really like the experience at the end of the day. How happy am I with my provider, like or NS, uh, MPS, if you will? Like, can I recommend this 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 company to somebody else? Or coming back to what you said with like with Revolut, for instance, like everybody was using it, and then they tell their friends as well that this is this is a nice experience. You should try it out, right? Yeah, and then especially information like it already was pretty accessible, right? But now that like there's browsers that integrate with AI that just goes over like the entire internet basically and just gives people the information that they're asking for. Like people are getting more and more educated and it's much easier for people to get educated about something, right? So it's really becoming more and more of a consumer's market uh, to an extent because of that, right? Because it's like everything is becoming very transparent. Maybe B2B services, not necessarily as much actually, but with B2C for sure, right? Because it's like there's so many reviews on something you can just see clearly, okay, this is good, right? So it's uh, it's a very interesting dynamic for sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay, perfect. Great, Patrick. Then any last words? How can people find you? So people can find me easily on uh, on LinkedIn or they can just uh, reach out either via via email or or phone call so I have my all my contact details uh, are are posted there and I'm looking forward to uh, to a lot of calls actually so it's um, independently if you're a utility provider or if you are somebody working with utilities that may want to partner up with us because we we believe a lot in partnerships and we we're doing a lot of partnerships or if you are like a digital nerd like myself and just want to discuss how to scale and build organizations or uh, to have a chat about maybe the future and where where development is going so uh, we're happy to connect and, and discuss further great awesome thanks a lot for being a guest and i uh, really appreciate you taking your time for this thank you so much i enjoyed it a lot